Wall Street and biotechnology companies have been very excited about this idea. And what essentially it is, is trying to hack the cells in the body in order to make them into drug factories. Welcome to The Daily Wrap-Up, a concise show dedicated to bringing you the most relevant independent news as we see it from the last 24 hours. Tuesday, January 16th, 2024. Thank you for joining me today. I decided to do something special today, a focus on something that I think is very important that we've talked a lot about in a broad sense and some very specific focuses as well. But I was going over a lot today, including the the development from the International uh, Court of Justice, the developments in regard to Israel in general, more on the uh, uh, possible hostage exchanges, and specifically about the developments going on in Syria, Iraq, with Iran firing, uh, you know, striking legitimately in these areas, Yemen, and, and and so on. I decided to put that off until tomorrow. Not because it's not obviously very important, but one, I'm going to do a lot more research to follow up on this. But also today, this just felt like something I wanted to focus on. Yesterday, I was unable to get to the show. I don't know if you guys saw, but we had something like five to seven inches of snow yesterday. And I was essentially trapped at home and I didn't have any real good uh, My internet was pretty spotty. So today it seems like it's much better. I'm still, you know, for the most part snowed in, but not not in the real sense, but, you know, just not wanting to go out and drive. So I decided to do, uh, you know, kind of a focus show and allow myself to catch up on the rest of that. But today we're going to focus on it, the kind of development of the research we focused on from the nanotechnology. We uh, This morning on AM Wake Up, we had a, an interesting conversation about some of these topics, about the ferret nanoparticle discussion and, and the, the different ways these have been utilized. And so today... I wanted to talk about that in relation to a new discussion I just saw John Campbell discuss the or the the focus on the new brain virus and very much in quotes because quite frankly I find this to be much more aligned with the way nanotechnology virus sized transistors would actually react so for those immediately on guard and you know I completely understand why about the idea of viruses Listen to this conversation today with before kind of jumping over the top and re, and thinking this is something that just focuses on virology. It's much bigger than that. And I want to focus on what this is, what it appears to be causing in this study. And it's this is not even up for debate. This is gain-of-function research. It's what it is. They've literally humanized mice just like they did before and then used, used this and tested it on multiple variations in order to try to make this one, be able to infect humans and be, and really they're finding what they claim a hundred percent mortality. And so I wanted to go over this, not just because of what this is, because I'm very, very resistant and, and on guard to reacting to what they put in front of us, but how I see this tying in with, again, the ferritin nanotechnology direction and a lot of other ways, but just the things that I already see taking place and kind of an overlap again with the neuroscience neuroweapon discussion. And you guys can come to your own conclusions about what we think this is and what's happening. But I find this to be an important overview of so, really I'm battling whether I think this is something that has long since already happened. But at the very least, something we should be aware of in the hopes that it hasn't yet and we can stop it about 
nanotech and, and whether these are, you know, smart dust applications and whether these have already been deployed. I mean, I think we know that they have been used, but whether or not it's a mass kind of a step like we've talked about with glyphosate that there's just no coming back from. Now, that does definitely sound conspiratorial, whatever that might mean to the reflexively dismissive mind. But it's nonetheless something that's rooted in scientific research, peer-reviewed science, and real-world application. So I think that's really important to understand. So we're going to start today with actually a quick point about just the COVID-19 injection conversation, where it's at now, and a recent study that Igor shared that I just want to very quickly break down and discuss in regard to why this in no way in my mind is honest, let alone shows that these things were effective. Like if, if, if you haven't seen this, this is actually an attempt to go back, specifically Delta even, over to Omicron, whatever you think that is, the time frame is what I'm discussing, and claim that retroactively now they're going, look, turns out they were super effective. I mean, think about how crazy that is to come from a time when they were saying 99, 100% even, directly from Albert Borla, in South Africa, he said 100% effective. None of that was true. And we've proven they knew when they said that, that that wasn't true. But now in the middle there, or rather in the middle, finding a time where people were finally going, okay, okay, they're not that effective. After 30 seconds, it drops away. After three months, it's negative efficacy. Really, that was your body failing. But the point was all these different things came out. Now, weirdly stepping back into the realm of wait, 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 re-re-evaluation, they were super effective. It's just, it's, Almost like they're hoping to set that narrative and then, you know, we're looking elsewhere. Maybe that becomes the story, right? So we share this. A study is making its rounds on the internet, proclaiming the extreme effectiveness, extreme effectiveness of COVID vaccines in children and adolescents. The two groups that are the least effective and the least needed in regard to whatever they say was happening. And really, ultimately had some of the most staggering effects when we really get into the full picture. And I'll give you some examples afterward. Because the main point to make here is that they're basically saying, you know, these were super effective because X, Y, and Z, and I'll go over the quick study now, while actively ignoring all of the completely baffling things we can't find a way to associate with the injection. So point, you, you get the point there, that if we know that this is causing outrageously high cardiovascular problems in a lot of different avenues, turbo cancers, prions disease, I mean, neonatal death, every one of those things we've proven, peer-reviewed science and just observational honesty, that that's the, in some case there. But then they stand back and go, oh my God, excess death is crazy, but we're baffled. We don't know what it is. At the very least, you can acknowledge that it could be this one obvious thing, gene, genetic technology that's been forced on people. The point is when they look over it and they go, look, it's effective. They're ignoring all of these huge things that are going on because they just go, well, we know it's not the vaccine. And that's how dumb this is. But obviously we've proven that it is connected. So you can see it's inherently dishonest. And says the raises more questions than it answers. Now I'll let you go through his thread. I'm not going to go too deep on this, quite frankly. I don't, I'm glad he did. He's a very intelligent person, somebody who's been very trustworthy throughout all of this process, showing himself to be objective, who broke this down in a really scientific way, showing you why just the, the way they've done it is not sound. But my, my, I don't think it even deserves the time because of how obviously manipulated this is. And I, in the sense that, you know, whether the people, the researchers doing it or not are aware of, I find it hard to believe that they wouldn't be, that you can just simply stand back and acknowledge they've proven with their own admissions and lies even how dangerous these things truly are. 
but go through it for yourself to see all the different examples he points out. I mean, really just shows you, for, just for example, he says somehow COVID vaccine makes myocarditis more likely than unvaccinated during the Delta period, but somehow it's extremely preventative during Omicron, which makes zero sense. Obviously, this is a data manipulation, but you guys can go through it for yourself. My point was just to read you exactly what it says. Just briefly, January 9th, 2024, real world effectiveness of the BNT162B2, which is specifically the Pfizer, and that was of the BNT162B, or rather just 62 grouping, remember, and that had multiple versions. And that was one of the ways they switched these things out early on, where they, they studied one thing but gave you another, which is something that's classic throughout history. They just keep doing the same old things and acting like it's a mistake. Against, it says, infection and severe disease in children and adolescents. Now, it says they were assessed by randomized trials. The long-term durability of the vaccine protection in this population was limited. So at the very least, they're right out of the gate admitting that, you know, whether or not we can show that it was effective, it's very limited. The timing. So even if you want to pretend they were effective, it rapidly, it, it, it goes away immediately. And after three months, I think the last, the, the highest we saw was something like, actually, I don't want to cite it off the top of my head. Let me see if I can grab this really quickly. Oh, just off his tweet here. Whoops, wrong one pop up in the in the chat here so here was the study itself and it was yeah it was 76 i was gonna say 75 76 negative efficacy on the pfizer side during omicron but take note that even over here on delta and remember this is relative risk reduction not absolute which is a fraction of the reality even on delta it said after 30 days it was 53 anyway the point was and here's the study you can read for yourself that these were not effective in any way. And actually that might be a good video to play really quickly to see uh, you guys. Let me see if I can grab that. Maybe it's still there. Yep. There it is. Just to reset this in your memory. So people know what I'm talking about when I say that. You have the right to know the potential benefit of any intervention. For example, Pfizer reported that its vaccine shows a 95% efficacy. That sounds like it protects you 95% of the time, right? But that's not actually what that number means. That 95% refers to the relative risk reduction, but it doesn't tell you how much your overall risk is reduced by vaccination. For that, we need absolute risk reduction. In the Pfizer trial, 8 out of 18,198 people who were given the vaccine developed COVID-19. In the unvaccinated placebo group, 162 people got it, which means that even without the vaccine, the risk of contracting COVID-19 was extremely low at 0.88%, which the- Now, the first obvious point is it wasn't dangerous. Even the current highest level peer-reviewed science shows you that it was less than the flu from the very beginning. If even actually there, citing Denny Rancourt's research that pretty much proves it didn't need to be. And we've gone over that. But even then, it shows you that the comparative point was manipulated. And even then, you can show Dr. Fauci or other groups earlier on discussing the discrepancy between using these two things and realizing, yeah, well, we knew we should have used the other one. But they've never stopped using relative risk reduction because it makes it look like, and I'll let it finish, it's more effective. The vaccine then reduced to 0.04%. So the net benefit or the absolute risk reduction that you're being offered with a Pfizer vaccine is 0.84%. That's it. That 95% number, that refers to the relative difference between 0.88 and 0.04%. 
So all they did was take the difference between the two and sell you at 95% effective. That's not the same thing. And they knew that. That's what they call 95% relative risk reduction. And relative risk reduction is well known to be a misleading number, which is why the FDA recommends using absolute risk reduction instead, which begs the question, how many people would have chosen to take the COVID-19 vaccines had they understood that they offered less than 1% benefit? It's obvious, guys. They knew that. And that's why it wasn't supposed to be used. They did anyway. That's great. So resetting that obvious manipulation, a willful deception from the very beginning, knowing that. But so the point was, even with all that said, it was less than the flu. It was not as dangerous as they said it was, if even there at all. And then it waned rapidly because it destroyed your body's immune system. Now, this study went back in that basically, you know, half-heartedly admitting that it was limited and then still tries to argue that it was effective. Now, it says. On the results during the Delta period, the estimated and remember, that was when Walensky first got caught trying to use old data to make it seem like it was effective, but finally was forced to admit that it did not stop transmission when it never did. We knew that. And then way later, when somebody was forced to state it in the middle of a European hearing, they acted like that was finally the time we knew. We knew from the very beginning going all the way back to Forbes' original article discussing the actual trial data that showed they never even tried to make a stop transmission. If only people listened to The Last American Vagabond and the many others that talked about that right in 2020, we would have been that much farther ahead. But if you wait for the Tuckers of the world to tell you what they are supposed to say later on or whoever you think is trying to lie to you, that's usually how it works. Lives could have been saved. Anyway, the Delta period. The estimated effectiveness of the BNT162B2 vaccine was 98.4%. Nine, and again, relative. So right there is a lie in and of itself, but that's not even accurate. The idea that, remember, even the relative number was shown to be dramatically less than that, especially during Delta. But they just are using these numbers. Okay, and again, this is boxing out all of the things that were dramatically less than that number. First of all, the question is whether you think they're discussing effectiveness specifically against whether it stops something or whether it produces antibodies. And then that assumption is that that would then stop something. Or if you're bringing in the full risk kind of profile, and saying, well, it might produce antibodies, which might have this effect, but then you might die from a heart attack or have blood clots or have thrombosis. So there's all three, those are three different pictures. I'm going to promise you right now, and you can look through the data yourself, this is about whether or not it produces antibodies. And then the long-term discussion of whether or not it's effective is usually a manipulation about whether those antibodies are produced to a high enough level. Remember, Fauci himself said, when they talked about, has a clinical response. And even the FDA was on the record more than once admitting that we don't know if that response is relevant to what we're currently dealing with. But that doesn't change the fact from what the, or the doesn't change that they then point at the high level of antibodies and say this is effective for this reason. Now, in any case, the point is 90.4% against documented infection amongst adolescents with no statistically significant waning after receipt of the first dose. Lie. I mean, flat out ridiculous lie. I just showed you the study itself and you can see very clearly, and this is again, the main study, you can read it. And this is on, it's on the preprint, but this is, there's multiple examples of the same data showing you that during Delta, in any sense, it waned. 86 relative risk reduction, remember, is a fraction of what they're telling you, but that goes down almost by half after three months. You're staring at the study right there and there's more than one. So do they just lie about that? Is there some kind of a data loophole or manipulation? I mean, this is what gets so frustrating. But it says an analysis of cardiac complications 
did not suggest a statistically significant difference between vaxxed and unvaxxed. So this, there's three lies before you even get to the first paragraph of the result. Because we've gone over this too. Now, this is just the one that I like to use because it is the largest and I think it's the most sound. But we've gone over at least three others to find the exact same thing. And as you know well, this has come to be very clearly discussed, which is the fact that you can show an overwhelming association, and they've been forced to admit it, that with myocarditis and general respiratory or rather cardiovascular issues and, and COVID-19 injections. COVID-19, whatever you think that is, and you sh- this is where it's the most important to wonder if it's even actually there, they did not find an association with that and these problems. And as it says right here, these it says post-COVID-19 infection was not associated with either myocarditis or pericarditis. Now, yes, there are studies that make the opposite claim, and we've gone over those, and there's obvious problems to how that's done. This and is continued to po- pointed to as the largest, most sound peer-reviewed study, a large population-based study on this information. So at the very least, realize that it's disputed if you want to side with the smaller not peer-reviewed studies that will argue that every connection you want to be is there. Either way, the point is that it's come to be very clear that it's obvious there is a very clear connection. Now, just because they want to say that there's no statistically significant difference between the prevalence of myocarditis after vaccines or injections in this case versus not having it doesn't make it true, especially since it's obviously statistically significant because they've been forced to state it publicly. They've been, they are, they've added it to the information on the CDC. How in the world would that not be statistically significant when they're deny, 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 and then finally have to admit that it's a problem? Crazy to me. But it says during the Omicron period, the effectiveness against documented infection among children was estimated to be 74%. They're literally arguing that it was 74% effective in stopping infection, even though they've now had to argue that it didn't even stop transmission. Explain that for me. Now, you get the point, guys. This is just a reimagining of this data in a way, and this is what p-hacking looks like when you take the data and you roll it out in certain ways until you can get it to look a certain way. Whether they did that or not is up for you to decide, intentionally, I would argue. Higher levels of effectiveness were seen against moderate or severe, on and on and on. Conclusion, the study suggests that this specific Pfizer version, the most dangerous as far as I can tell, was effective for various COVID-19-related outcomes in children during Delta and Omicron. There's some evidence of waning. Again, Omicron, the one that literally shows you almost a 77% negative efficacy, which means you have a 76% higher chance than never have taking anything of getting sick with whatever they tell you this is. And that's supposed to be effective? Realize that that was at 55% relative risk reduction in the first day. That's just staggering to me that they can make the argument. Now, the point is, the reason I wanted to start with this is they're still they're trying to kind of re- recreate the perception of what happened before. Why? Because I don't think I mean, I think we all can see that this is not over. And I'm not even really talking about the next pandemic or the disease X, which they those overlap to this. I'm wondering whether or not this is something far more nefarious about experimentation on the human population and whether this is necessary to reset the table for what seems to be coming next. But please come to your own conclusions about why this might be happening. Now, just to quickly show you how absurd it is to go, it's super effective while completely ignoring the most, I mean, the largest red flags I think the human species has seen since we've talked about genetic engineering, maybe ever. 
the idea that we can see these gigantic problems that we pretend aren't connected to the obvious thing it's connected to. Get this. This is a new one. This is from three days ago. Asim Maholtra. Study confirms biggest cause of alarming surge. Un- conf- they're confused about. We're baffled. In excess death in the UK is, what do you know, cardiovascular. So here we are going, look, this thing's super effective while acting like the gigantic surge in cardiovascular issues, just because they claim it's about the same level on either side of it, is totally not connected to the injection. With studies that show you that COVID-19, whatever you claim that is, is not connected to causing this problem. And then in this, you can read that these are not COVID-related. And yet they're like, we're baffled. But this shot causes myocarditis, and we have to admit that. But we're still confused, and we don't know what it is. It's definitely not that. I mean, good God, that's criminal, is it not? Leading cardiologist says COVID mRNA vaccine could be behind excess deaths. That's people say him and others saying that. But the point is, you read this alarming surge. We're baffled. We're confused. We need a thorough investigation to find out what's going on. Pretty sure we know what's going on or the same thing we just showed you. Cancer is striking more young people. We're baffled or not. Or it's obvious what's going on and you guys don't want to admit it or the same thing here. This one more so relates with what we're about to get into. The prion disease overlap. Mystery brain illness baffles Canadian doctors or everywhere else we've talked about this. This is from 2022. So all these huge red flags are not connected because it's effective if we ignore all of this stuff. Now, one quick point I want to include that I thought was hilarious. Sal the agorist points this out. Now, I I wouldn't say this necessarily as MAGA's dismissal. I hate the broad stroke in any sense of any group, but I definitely get that sense from what this seems to be here. And I just want you to think about this, especially as we go over how alarming this really seems to be, is Trump's essentially tripling, quadrupling down, even to this point, on the vaccine. As long as you scream he didn't make you do it, which even then, that's a complete sidestepping of what really happened. I'm not going to pretend that he forced it down your throat like, like we more so have seen Biden do. But he definitely set the table for that. He allowed it all to be that way. And still to this day, will argue that it's not necessarily, not just that, it's, we didn't get forced, but that it's a positive thing, that it has changed people's lives, helped them even against COVID-19. And yet here is how Pim Tool here talks about Tr- Donald Trump and the vaccine. Holy fucking shit. Was this not we get it? Pardon me. It's kind of low. I forgot, but it's, there's cussing. So prepare yourself for that. I have had this debate yeah. 7,000 times. Hey, yeah. And I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm losing my fucking mind. I am so over people like... Trump was bad because Trump is saying, no, I agree with you. We, we did not know. Of course, Loomer agrees. Ago. Of course. And now we are four years on with mass illegal immigration, 10,000 people per day. And you're talking about a vaccine program for four years ago. Okay. So lots of my, lots of immigration and problems. I don't care how important you think that is to, to pretend like all of these current problems are important. Therefore, let's ignore what happened four years ago as if that is not still one of the largest things we've ever seen take place on this planet that is still to this very day causing more death and more destruction in human species and our per interpersonal lives than anything they're talking about. Even if you think that is a huge dynamic that is going to change everything, which maybe you're right. I mean, look, I've openly and repeatedly talked about the concept of weaponized migration. It is definitely a part of what's happening. Doesn't mean we should blame the individuals being used by your governments, though, which is how this ultimately takes frank, takes shape, where it ends up being that you attack the very people when most of them don't even know they're being used by the governments. And on top of that, the foreign policy of your government is largely why it's even a part of what's going on. But forget all of that. But it's still an important topic. But to act like that is somehow distant and no longer relevant either shows a willful 
willful disregard of the facts and the concern of the people's lives is destroyed. Or you're just that bad at your job. I mean, my God, the, 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 the sidestep of this. And I think in the ca this case, the video, I think it's Luke Radowski who essentially is arguing it's important. So good on him. Oh, you're done because Trump said it's your choice because what he says is always the truth, right? Even then, guys, just because he made it, he says it's your choice. But even though let's not forget the Defense Production Act, the state of emergency in general, which allowed these things to be forced. There's a thousand examples to show you that just because he says that doesn't mean it actually happened. Shocking, I know. But on top of that, if you create through your warp speed program and still continue to support the thing that literally everybody in your base is screaming is the worst thing that's ever been done to this planet, they're murdering people in real time. And then as we get into this conversation today, it seems far, far, far more alarming with the DARPA overlap and smart dust and all of this and acting like, well, he didn't tell you you had to. So let's move on. I mean, it's just this willful partisan blindness that I can never get past. And I'm still blown away by why people can't see through it. Some people. Now here. Oh, and, and here's what uh, what Stal says. He says MAGA's dismissal. And in this case, I would just specifically say, you know, the specific people. And there's a lot of people in the MAGA group that are really angry about Trump and aren't, aren't even voting for him for the same reason that this is happening. But these people and these kind of people in the Make America Great Again movement, dismissal of the vaccine genocide, he says, is their Benghazi. What does it even matter anymore, he says, moment, only a much on a much larger scale. And he's right. He says, also note Tim's emotional reaction to how he ends the discussion of the topic. Classic symptom of cognitive dissonance. I agree. What's funny down here is that people are like attacking Sal Algoris like he's somehow chosen the side of the globalist. It's like that's the childish binary thinking to say, like, if you're either with Trump or you're with everybody, every bad thing we've ever seen. In any case, I think it's important to see that it's not just Biden. It's not just Trump, guys. It's your government. It's your government doing this to you. And it always has been. And the game of the two party illusion is how they keep you not seeing it. And people like that who might otherwise tell you this, be able to acknowledge it, to be completely blind to the most obvious thing you've ever seen. And here is what Trump actually said very recently. Now, I don't think this was like yesterday, but this was a re not too long ago. This was post all of this. And here's what he said, doubling down. People have died under COVID this year, by the way. Oh, and, and it's funny that she's so clearly trying to set him up to just kick this over onto Biden. Well, more people got it under Biden and they forced it more than anybody. But then immediately he jumps in and goes, but the vaccine's good. And the way she responds, it's just, I've been in interviews myself where you've, you're kind of setting up a question and it doesn't go the way you think it's going to go. And it's just funny. Like, I can see it in her face. My personal opinion, but watch for yourself. And yeah, we more say, people have died under COVID this year, by the way, yeah, under Joe Biden right. than under you. And more people took the vaccine this year. So people are questioning how... Well, no, the vaccine worked, but yeah. some people aren't taking it. The ones... Oh, the vaccine worked, in case you missed that. That's what he said. It worked did not work and maybe well maybe it did and that's even more alarming the ones that get very sick and go to the hospital are the ones that don't take their vaccine but it's still their choice okay so you just lied and now either you maybe you don't know that you guys can decide if he's either just completely blind to the facts or not which i don't know why you'd want somebody like that in power worse if he's lying we knows he's lying but it didn't help anybody people who took this injection were worse and the people that are still struggling are the people that took multiple versions of it but yet to this day, he still argues that it helped people. How does that not 
put people, I mean, if you want to call this a genocide, if you want to call this a, I mean, whatever you want to call it, him saying that makes him just as much a part of it as anybody else, whether or not he states he didn't force it, even though he allowed it to happen that way. Oops, that was too far. Very sick and go to the hospital. Questioning how uh, the vaccine worked, but some people aren't taking the ones. The ones that get very sick and go to the hospital are the ones that don't take the vaccine. Nope. It's simply the opposite. And I think it's proven at this point. The ones that got the worst illness were the ones that got multiple vaccines. But it's still their choice. And if you take the vaccine, you're protected. How are you going to say something like that? And how are you going to support him when you know that's not true? Look, the and I'm not saying support Biden either. Don't think binary. Let's realize they're all part of this. The results of the vaccine are very good. And nope. if you do get it, it's a very minor form. People aren't dying when they take the vaccine. Same old lie that we're her. Oh, oh, good thing I got it. It would have been worse. How is that not straight out of the mainstream there? It is. It's exactly what it is. We know this. Anybody honest knows this. Now. I thought that was important to include to show you, especially the people that might be clinging to some partisan mindset that this is a government around concept. Now, we just saw this of the annual meeting of 2024 for the WEF. And this is, of course, the way, as uh, Derek just recently covered, the 54th meeting where they're discussing rebuilding trust again, seeing as how they haven't regained the control over the narrative. And in this article, Derek writes about the alternative aspects for the activist movements. One of them, the greater reset, you should take part in. Because this is about showing you that there are other paths forward. But here's what they said. I thought this was imp- this important. Coming off of Donald Trump, right? Just stringing out a whole bunch of lies. Now, again, not super recent, but that's the same thing you're going to hear from anybody that are either saying that's kind of right-wing side of it or the complete other side of the you know left-wing spectrum. But either way, all of it is the same as my point. All of it trying to pro-vaccine, push this in your mind. They're telling us that mis- and disinformation are now a bigger threat than anything else. So does that mean that Trump said it's going to be? Well, no, they're not censored. That's the kind of thing they want you to say. But when we come out and point out this peer-reviewed science or the facts that show you that these things are the opposite of anything you should ever take, well, that is what they're going to censor. I think it's important to see how he aligns. He's on the same side as the globalist agenda in this circumstance. For the global business community, The top concern for the next two years is not conflict or climate. It is disinformation and misinformation, followed closely by polarization within our societies. These risks are serious because they limit our ability to tackle the big global challenges we are facing, changes in our climate, and our geopolitical climate, shifts in our demography and in our technology, spiraling regional conflicts and intensified geopolitical competition and their impacts on supply chains. The sobering reality is that we are once again competing more intensely across countries than we have in several decades. And this makes the theme of this year's Davos meeting even more relevant, rebuilding trust. This is not a time for conflicts or polarization. What's funny is, we again talked about this today and wake up this morning. When you say rebuilding trust, let me ask you something. If you've been going through this process 
and done whatever you've been doing this whole time and it didn't and and last one of the, I think two years ago it was rebuilding trust, right? And it hasn't changed. Would you just go, let's just do the same thing and continue to censor and shout and scream and and push our narrative and what the truth like that's not what you would do if your actual goal was rebuilding trust you would have accountability you would have transparency you would say look we, this is why we failed here's what we're doing different <laughs> nope they're just going through the same motions so it clearly shows you it's not about rebuilding your trust it's about shutting down dissent that's the main point here this is a time to build trust this is a time to drive global collaboration more than ever before Right. They're, they're, what she's aiming this at as, is the elitists, the other people with power that they're trying to align with to control the narrative. They don't really care what you think as long as they can control the flow of what happens and that the perceived, per, the presented narrative that the corporate media and the people that blindly follow that might adhere to. They know most of us are seeing right through them, but it's about maintaining a certain level of control over the narrative and the flow of information, which they have been failing at. This requires immediate and structural responses to match the size of the global challenges. Right. So we need to reimagine how we technologically control the flow of information because we keep failing. Mis and disinformation. Interestingly, they've left, they've left out the whole malinformation thing, which was done when it first started. Clearly, they didn't think that worked well enough. Either way, if they're telling you that mis and disinformation are a bigger threat than their other illusory issues like climate change, it means we are about to see a huge censorship push. This is why it's important to never self-censor. Stand your ground. And realize when I say that other illusory issues like climate change, that's not to suggest that we're not destroying the planet a thousand ways. Predominantly things like the military, both U.S. and China and elsewhere, actively being the worst polluters and it still are at this very moment while trying to pretend that your carbon tax on your car is somehow going to change anything when even the carbon is not even the issue. The bottom line is the climate change narrative is illusory, and they know this at this point. They know you know this. The point is they're trying to control the flow of information. Now, here is where we're going to take this conversation in regard to the COVID-19 injection conversation and that flow of information control is the next step. And why I think they're so desperate to control this before I think, you know, there's a lot of ways you could look at this, whether this is an experiment on the human population or individual nations, whether this is something bigger than that, whether this is about concepts like consciousness and artificial intelligence or the, con the idea of meshing actual Internet of body concepts. Let's not forget, we're in what they call the Internet of things, which overlaps with the Internet of nano things which is real. These are op their stated things at the Davos WEF meetings and long before, by the way. Now, the point is we're stepping into the internet of, of bodies, right? And so what that overlaps with is the internet of nano things, which is essentially the uh, virus-sized transistors like Charles Lieber. I'll show you that in a second again. Or these, oh, that's from 2011 or smart dust or these things that have been linked to the internet and connectivity at even at a nano scale. Then if and when those things are inside your body, that becomes the internet of bodies. They're not even hiding this, right? So you, know, you may not think that's nefarious, but that's a very real and publicly stated concept, right? So the point is, however this ends up going, the question is whether or not these are all being, all of this is leading in the direction of this next step. Now here, this is clandestine sharing, just an alert, whether you think this is real or not, it's to set up the point. Bioweapons alert, he says, Russia, they, basically Russian's government and their Ministry of Defense have accused, again, the U.S. government of creating, quote, artificially managed epidemics. Now, that 
And it says violating the Biological Weapons Convention and are demanding UN investigation, which I doubt they will. And of course, this comes as the whole disease or pathogen X are being discussed at the WEF, which again, is just a hypothetical catch-all for things we don't know. There is no such thing right now as pathogen X or disease X. It is a, a category for the next thing that might be da more dangerous. When they, when they state like numbers, well, it could be as much as this much. It's a meaningless statement. It could be as much as anything because it doesn't exist yet and they're guessing, right? So the point is, artificially managed epidemics, does that mean controlled release of viruses or bacteria? Or does it mean literally artificially managed nanotechnology, smart dust, or any those kind of veins? And these are real concepts, as I'll make sure you get clear by the end of the show if you haven't seen this yet. Real things in real time that have already been utilized and could, if they wanted to, be used just like that. Oh, and this is funny. So this one, this is Russia's post saying, the work of the U.S. military biologists is aimed at forming artificially managed epidemics and is not monitored under the, the bioweapons chemical, uh, the, the Conve bio, bioweapons convention and the U.N. Secretary General's mechanism for investigating the use of biological weapons. What's funny is, down here it says, the false claim that the U.S. is operating secret biolabs in Ukraine is one of that's been repeatedly spread by Russian propaganda. I can't believe, see, just again to show you how Twitter has been completely weaponized in a way that it's like, whether there was ever a brief moment where these things were being used in a positive way, maybe they're still, it's so obvious how this is just falling right back into the same old docking points, despite the fact that I think even Musk himself has talked about this exact point, which just because you want to make it about how it's a research lab versus a bio lab, and that's fake news when you say it like that, even though those words are interchangeable, mean the same thing. And Newland herself admitted this. Ukraine have chemical or biological weapons. Uh, Ukraine has uh, biological research facilities which, in fact, we are now quite concerned Russian troops, Russian forces may be seeking to uh, gain control of. Yeah, exactly. Because, oh, when Russia's there, suddenly the Russian feet are in the building and, oh, it's a weapons factory now. Because it's the same damn thing. And it's just as capable of doing that right now as it is if Russia suddenly takes over the location or the U.S. for that matter, which is what they do in Georgia and all over the place in, in the country wise. So it's just ridiculous that they can state the obvious fact, which is that, of course, they have biological research facilities or bioweapons labs because it's the same damn thing. And it just gets a, it's a narrative spin. So we are working with the Ukrainians on how they can prevent any of those research materials from falling into the hands of uh, Russian forces, should they. Right. Research material, whether that's just simply biological virus and whatever else you think might be there or a weaponized version of it or a gain-of-function version that's just because we want to make a vaccine. It's all the same thing. It's semantics. They approach. What I think got some people fired up is when she said, we're worried that the Russians will get a hold of these facilities because that implies that there's something in those facilities dangerous. So I don't know if you could shed some light on how, it can, how there can be things in the lab that are dangerous, but they not be weapons labs. Yeah, all I would all I would say, Senator, is that, you know, that the danger here, it seems to me, is the capacity the Russians have developed and that they've used in the past and their, you know, interest in crying, trying to create false narratives here as well. Um, to the best of my knowledge, well, you have to be careful about, you know, any of those substances you've, you've talked about, which you see in 
public health or research systems around the world for civilian purposes, well, you have to be careful about that. That is in no way akin to the kind of threats that would be posed by, you know, weapons research and development or weapons. Right. And because if Russia's there, that's what that would be. Now, let's just be very clear about this. Stated weapons research is identical to the gain-of-function research in regard to safety, they would argue. Now, there's a step in there or post that to where you could literally make it and package it into some kind of deployable concept. Now, whether that's happening, is that's, they're arguing no. It's a moot point, and people like Dr. Boyle and anybody who is honest and an expert in this field has made it very clear it's the same exact thing. And that's exactly why we've come to realize that things coming out of Fort Detrick or other locations are, in fact, weapons. And let's not forget as well what Dr. David Martin points out about this research going up prior to COVID-19. We should be having a public dialogue, and it should be something that rises to the level of legislation. We should not allow the National Institutes of Health or the Department of Defense to allocate funding to amplify these agents so that allegedly we can study them in the case that they fall into the hands of bad people. Because the evidence has shown us that the bad people who actually have unleashed these pathogens since 1991, and by the way, if you go to Miscellaneous Memorandum 7 and other documents, we can go back to the 1950s. The bad people who unleash these things on the population are us. It is the U.S. who's doing it. Right. So now back to the point. The point is that Russia is saying they're doing this again. Artificially managed epidemics. And it's com- and it is, it is coming, essentially. You can believe it or not. It's up to you. The reality of the possibility is undeniable. Now, here's the video I'll include. John Campbell's discussing a new study that I'll show you right after this. I just want to play his intro to it. And he's calling it a new brain virus. Right. So this, for me, much more overlaps with the concept of nanotechnology and how that's being utilized. And I'll show you what I mean in that. But ultimately, that this is a new study using gain-of-function research to make this extremely more dangerous, which, by the way, should be illegal. I don't even know how it's possible that we just fell right back into that with no... Like, it didn't even stop, guys. It didn't even pause. But here's John Campbell discussing the beginning of this study. Little creatures that are so abused throughout uh, Eastern Asia, particularly. They took a virus from the pangolin and they cultured it in cells in the laboratory. And they then infected mice with it. And it killed all of the mice that it infected through brain infection. So they've generated this new virus that kills 100% of mice it's infected with. But it gets worse. Because the mice that were infected were humanized mice. Now, these are called transgenic mice. In other words, they were given some human genes. And this is exactly what the, the focus of the issue from before about the gain of function, Rand Paul and Fauci. And the, the, it's exactly the same thing. And, and why this is still happening should blow your mind or you know, why we should be questioning. And they were given human ACE receptor genes that were expressed by the mouse. So these are essentially human ACE receptors in genes. And it was a coronavirus from the pangolin, and it killed 100% of the mice that were infected. And these are the things that they are jiggling around with in laboratories. This is absolute madness, and it needs to be banned uh, yesterday, as far as I'm concerned. The only reason I can see for doing this kind of research, the only reason I can see is as biological weapons. I really can't see anything else. So that sounds melodramatic. And see, this is I love how he's come such a such an arc from the beginning of COVID-19. And it's just, this is just him to be, you know, in my opinion, just being 
honest about it, realizing that at this point, there's nothing talking about these things is, are going to cause the, the willfully blind to always reflexively scream conspiracy theory. It doesn't matter that you can prove it with peer-reviewed science, that it's an obvious real-world function and has been worked on from DARPA and many other angles for a very long time. I'm not even just talking about bioweapons. I'm talking about all the stuff we're going to talk about. His, my point is, for him to say that, it's just the simple reality. You can't pretend this is just some, you know, they, as he describes here, the idea that we've always pointed out, that you're going to take something, a random, whatever, a virus in nature, whatever you want to call it, to then make it more dangerous and try to get it to infect humans, right? And then argue that you're only doing that to make a vaccine for a thing that exists nowhere else in the world other than your lab. So either it gets out somehow, which happens all the time, and then, hey, we got a vaccine, if that even works properly, if they even actually made that, or to argue that the what they claim is the way they use this, just in case. Somebody at a cave somewhere makes the same version, exactly one in a billion possibility, and you just so happen to have it right. Why does that make sense to anybody? The researchers say it's because they're worried about spillover infection. But of course, they created the virus in the first place, in their cell lines, in the laboratory. Um, so it's not a virus that's in nature to spill over into human populations. So we've got a situation where they created a virus or generated a virus, it's not that they synthesized it together, it just evolved in their cell cultures in the lab, that killed 100% of the humanized mice, brain virus, brain virus disease. Now, um, they don't say whether they've tested it on humans or not, but given that it was affecting human ACE2 receptors, I think the probability is it would cause viral brain death in the vast majority of human beings that it infected. This research, to me, is just an existential threat to humanity. It really has to be stopped because the record of labs leaking all over the place, you were just reminded of a sieve. Let's, let's give you the details and you can um, make, make your own mind up. I'm not going to have told you what I think, but uh, this is the paper here. It's a preprint, a lethal infection of human uh, ACE2 receptors in transgenic. Now, you can watch the rest for yourself. What I'm going to do is go over the study right now. This is January 4th, this year, 2024. Lethal infection of human H2 transgenic mice caused by SARS-CoV-2 related pangolin coronavirus, and which they're calling GX-P2V. And there's two versions in this. So again, the brain virus aspect of it. I think it's important to think about how this overlaps with what we saw during the COVID-19 discussion the idea of nanotechnology and what we're going to get into in regard to the ferritin aspect and the different efforts to literally utilize genetically engineered proteins and, and, and different versions of that same technology to control the output, as well as relay biosurveillance. And that's where this dovetails with the idea and the work of Charles Lieber and Robert Langer, being the, Langer being the co-founder of Moderna. All, and and uh, Charles Lieber's research being kind of the foundational part of the of the lipid nanoparticle aspect, both, really both of them. All this work kind of overlaps with both of their different uh, their different not inputs, but the parts that they brought to the table and the different parts of the research over the years. Now, bringing this into this current study, the question is whether or not this is some kind of random genetically engineered virus aspect or something else. But before we even get to the something else, just recognize that this is gain-of-function research that should not be allowed. 
And and just like as, as John, even John Campbell points out, the fact that I've from Fort Detrick, for example, they're the ones that admitted one leak every three days for seven years straight. That's a statement from the CDC. And th that's where we've had discussions. I mean, that's where the anthrax discussion comes from. And ultimately tried to blame, uh, well, I forget the guy's name off the top of my head, but the research shows you that they lied about that and they blamed it on this guy, which ultimately led to his death. Either way, things on the bottom of your shoe, things going out in trash cans. This is a BSL-4 lab. They deal with the most dangerous aspects, including coronavirus, coronaviruses and Ebola and all the rest of these things. So the question is, why would we even allow them to keep doing this? So it causes 100% mortality. Potentially attributable to the late stage brain infection, brain infection. That just seems like a strange step or just, you know, difference. Now it says two SARS-CoV-2 related pangolin coronaviruses, GD 2019 and GX 2017, were identified prior to COVID-19 outbreak. Doesn't that seem strange? Now, why in the world would they be utilizing these things as opposed to what they claim is the big focus? COVID-19. Seems like a strange thing. And it says the respective isolates termed, assuming that's, I'm willing to bet you they didn't even actually do that, termed PCOV, GDO1, and the different names they have from were cultured in 2020 and 2017. Apparently in the middle of the beginning of the biggest pandemic in a century, they tell us, which isn't true, they were working on these things and before. But it says here, and this is where it gets important and overlaps with a couple of conversations I'm sure you've seen before. All the mice that were infected with the live virus succumbed to the infection within seven to eight days, posting inoculation, rendering a mortality rate of 100%. If that's real, that's a terrifying concept. Why they would be working on that, right? Knowing that they're the ones that made it into this kind of level of danger. Why would you want to create something like that? So you can utilize it against your enemies. By the seventh day following infection, the mice displayed symptoms such as, uh, actually, I forgot to look that up, phyllo erection. What is that? This is goosebumps or goose pimples. That's not huge. Goosebumps, apparently, hunched posture and sluggish movements, and their eyes turned white. Very weird. The organs of four randomly selected mice in each group were dissected on days three and six post-infection for quantitative analysis of viral RNA and titer. We detected significant amounts of viral RNA in the brain, lung. Uh, what was this again? Turbinate. It was the, it says a shaped like a spinning top or inverted. Huh. Another term for tubernal. I'm not exactly sure what that was, but, and it says uh, RNA in the, all over the body was the point. Brain, lung, eyes, trachea, which, by the way, doesn't that sound very familiar to the, what happened after the people, the multiple autopsies studies done on people post-injection with the COVID-19 injection? RNA in every organ in the body. Remember that? Same with the spike protein. Seems interesting. And it says, whereas there was low, uh, lower or no amount of that in things like the heart, the liver, the spleen, the kidneys, the tongue, the stomach, the intestines. Heart being interestingly different. Now, it says, by day six, in addition to the shrunken neurons, the game, I'm telling you, there's, this does not make sense to me, coming off of some abstract, you know, kind of branched version or even previous of what they claim is the COVID-19 virus. This sounds like something that was designed to manipulate your brain. Now, again, for those that want to believe this is just natural things, they're doing what they can. 
it, you could argue that, but I, I don't get why the, there would be such a deviation. But I'm just, I'm just kind of speaking out loud, thinking out loud. This is not even the beginning of what gets most alarming in this. But shrunken neurons. There was focal lymph, lymphocytic infiltration around the blood vessels, although no conspicuous inflammatory reaction was observed. So we're seeing the same kind of problems that we see post-COVID injection, right? But this time, differently, this seems that they claim anyway, no it was like a, a an interesting lack of inflammatory reaction, right? So is this the next step? Is this something like my mindset? One of the things I think about, if this was a massive experiment on the population, which I'm convinced was part of it. And that was showed one of these byproducts that maybe they didn't want. If this was an effort to, I don't know, have biosurveillance re- relay or to control, you wouldn't want to kill the host. So is this another step in that direction? Now, I'm not saying I think that even necessarily or that I think that's I'm just floating these possibilities, trying to connect this with something that I do think is real. And again, you'll see where all this goes. Now, that in and of itself is alarming and crazy. They've made something that's 100 percent mortality and kills within a week and creates some kind of brain neuron shrinking. I mean, that's really, really crazy. Now, interestingly enough. We just posted on the Substack, which we're going to be putting more of these out as well. I also put out a recent article about one of the appeal discussions on there, the, you know, the organ appeal. <laughs> and it, even, even the last time I talked about this, I think that was this one here. Where was that? I think it was this one. I'll come back to this in a second on the 29th of last year. I, I, I stemmed, I came from the place of the appeal discussion, which is not nano part necessarily we don't know i don't think it is nano like robots but it's still nanotech it's still the same kind of overlap and i worry about what could be used in all these different ways not i'm not going to get into that today but that's where this comes from the point is i posted that recently on the Substack. the other thing was a bunch of stuff that relates to the amazing and powerful interview taylor did with the late arna burkhardt and one of the things he found in this discussion of the lymphocytic infiltration in the heart muscle the thyroid gland and lung following the COVID-19 injections. Really well broken down. Taylor does an amazing job breaking this stuff down. So think about the interesting overlap there. In this case, we're talking about the same thing. Uh, right here, the lympho- lymphocytic infiltration. Now, that's not something that's wildly unique to just this one thing, but it's interesting nonetheless that there's a connection there, which to me seems to speak more to the fact that this is some of the, in the same vein of the same research that was utilized in the other bioweapon. Oh, excuse me, the injection. Watch it, listen, read it for yourself. Now, another overlap that Taylor sent me was from uh, Doctors for COVID Ethics. This came out yesterday on the pathogenesis of turbo cancer induced by COVID-19 mRNA vaccines. And this is just really quickly. It says the short memo makes the co- the case that turbo cancers in patients who receive the mRNA vaccines can be explained by the observed uptake of those vaccines by microphages and, dendri- and den- dendritic cells based on a well-documented but not widely known theory of carcinogen- carcinogenesis. Most doctors and cancer researchers consider DNA damage the primary cause of malignancy. And it is true that the mRNA vaccines could potentially induce genetic damage in a variety of ways. Now, it's a really great overview of some scientific research, but I just wanted to point out the obvious and interesting overlap to the explosion of turbo cancers. 
It says, in connection with the COVID-19 vaccines, we have been told that their main purpose was to induce antibodies, even though this is a rather futile approach for immunizing against a respiratory pathogen, seeing it's like they still seemingly all know this, but don't ever really make that case. As Dr. Baki's made clear, you can't shoot an injection in your arm and get mucosal immunity, which is how you stop a respiratory pathogen. That goes for the flu, too, by the way. Efficient antibody formation requires the activation of antigen-presenting cells, in particular, dendritic cells. Make and macrophages and B lymphocytes. And indeed, one can easily find articles that highlight the ability of the mRNA lipid nanoparticles to make their way to such antigen presenting cells. Pathologists Arna Burkhart and Walter Lang found spike protein expressing dendritic cells and the macrophages in some of their tissue spe- specimens from living and dead vaccine victims. So it's very interesting to see that overlap as well when the whole cancer aspect, I mean, I, even on an interesting side note, get into the whole artificial meat side of this like there's a lot of different angles this stuff is being presented now he discussed this in his you know new brain virus video which is right here brooke hines share uh shared this interesting overlap which is what brings me to this point about the, the there's a lot of weirdness that i'm trying not to get into because i do think there's a lot of hypotheticals in it but the conversation of like the zombie virus that was floated by that one guy from the military or post from it saying that they're, that's just the name they use, but it's essentially something that is real that ultimately could end up leading to things like this that cause these same kind of reactions, the kind of prions overlap in humans, right? Now, whether you believe that that is connected to this or even real, the point is that there is some alarming overlap to what we're talking about here coming from this brain overlap concept to, and I'll just share this quick video for you. And this is not necessarily that I'm, even vetting everything that this person's saying in this TikTok or Instagram video, but just to show you the images of what this looks like to then go over this information as it might relate to what we're seeing. And she says, sharing this now to show you the neurodegeneration and even the white eyes in living animals, which is exactly what they just said they created in this lab, right? This is a zombie deer disease, which is kind of the colloquial, that's the, the common phrase for it. It's actually called uh, the chronic wasting disease, and I'll show you that next. But it says caused by prions like mad cow. It's not what Campbell's talking about. It's just a visualization of the brain disease. So that's clear, right? But I still find it interesting. Check this out. A deer virus. And what's really alarming is the CDC is not ruling out that it can jump from deers to humans. What is this virus? Walking around literally like a zombie with the nervous system completely being disrupted, drooling, lethargic, falling over, dragging on the ground, and eventually dying. What started with one deer and then a few deer is now in hundreds of deers and now in thousands of deers in 32 states across the country and also being found in other countries like Canada. Why is this happening all of a sudden? You can be the judge of that, but it's something to pay close attention to over the next few months. So what's interesting is the overlap to it, right? The the hunching posture, and that's actually here what what she was saying as well. This is what I was reading a second ago, right? Goosebumps, hunched posture, sluggish movements, white eyes, white. Very strange, right? So here is, this is from December 28th, 2023. Scientists warn of, again, the quote they use in the general zombie deer disease could spread to humans as cases surge. Now, I don't know if I believe that, if that's just what they always say. It could do this and it might be worse and it could be, you know, just just all hype, right? Even right now, I think they're like hyping some new measles outbreak over here. It's always something to get you worried about the next big thing, the ZZX, which, you know, maybe you agree, maybe you think that's the thing to do, but I, don't, I disagree. I think the unnecessary fear about the hypothetical is exactly how they keep people in line. And that's even what the WHO and the HHS called out about the CDC 
in the last couple of decades. I've shown you both those posts so many times where they literally say pandemics of fear, pushing this to sell vaccines. And now no one talks about that anymore. But this is exactly what it looks like, just like the video you saw. Here is the actual CDC page. And this is what relates it to specifically a prion disease. And you can read this for yourself as well. It's the same exact discussion. So here is this tie back into the COVID-19 conversation and the injection. This is one of the earliest studies that came out, a very important peer-reviewed study from, uh, uh, what is it, SciVisionPub.com. It talks about COVID-19, RNA-based vaccines, not the other ones, just the RNA, and the risk of prion disease. So it's very interesting, right? And here it gets into, specifically, the interactions with potential to increase. It says zinc ions have been shown to cause the transformation of TDP43. Now remember that. The TDP discussion is very interesting. To its pathological prion configuration. The folding of TDP43 TDP43 and FUS into their pathological prion conformations is known to cause ALS, front temporal labral degeneration, Alzheimer's disease, other neurological degenerative diseases. The, the enclosed finding, as well as additional potential risks, lead the author to believe that regulatory approval of the RNA-based vaccines for SARS-CoV-2 is premature, and the vaccine may cause much more harm than benefit. Yeah, you're damn right. The point was that these things were shown to cause this binding protein TDP43 to, as it says here, fold, the folding of it. And that has historically been very clearly led to or leads to things like ALS, Alzheimer's, and so on. And now it looks like it might be discussing something else, very similar. That's just a possibility. Now, remember the TDP protein overlap. But first, let's re- remember the conversation of the kind of technology that I think this relates to more than anything. And this is really the idea of the nanotechnology smart dust application, which I just don't think people give enough time today, especially since this is something that Charles Lieber, of none other than Charles Lieber, who was arrested in the beginning of the COVID illusion, along with Chinese nationals for shuttling biological material in their socks from Beth Israel Hospital. And this is in 2011, creating virus-sized transistors, right? So an actual nanotech robot level, if that's even the right word, it's too archaic for me these days, that is the size of a virus. Not some big clunky thing you stick in your finger or your arm, like a literal, like a actual size of a virus. It's not a, it's not a joke. And the point was they discussed these as, and in this case, they use the, um, let's see. They couldn't figure out how to make it work until they discovered they coated the hairpin nanowire with a fatty lipid layer. So it's already showing you the na- the lipid nano part of this. But the main point, as I always show you, is that they, his main finding was that when, and then, of course, two-way communication, this overlaps with the Langer and Lieber kind of work. Again, this is the Charles Lieber right there is his name. But it says right here that when it is as small as a virus, when a man-made structure is as small as a virus or bacteria, for those that are just, you know, that opens the door for the train theory conversation, that, that it can behave the way biological structures do. So as I always point out, what if that's exactly what people dealt with? What if this was the release of something that was not natural and we're still dealing with because they couldn't control it or any number of things? Or the test is now realizing, oh, well, it caused all this inflammation. So we have to go back and try to recreate it this way. Like there's all these hypotheticals, but they're real things. Now, we also discussed this this morning. 
So the, the overlap with the virus sized transistor, which can act like a virus, apparently, with the concept of the genetically engineered proteins. Now, how these things come together is the point. Utilizing a genetically engineered virus and the either used, deployed, or naturally created ferritin proteins, they can, in fact, control things. This is not hypothetical, and I'll prove it to you yet again right now. And specifically talking about using the virus to deploy the very thing that can end up controlling and relaying the biosurveillance back to whoever is controlling this. Now, this goes back to 2016 when this article was written, but the work goes back way before that. We've gone over this many times, but just briefly, genetically, actually, no, I think, um, oh, of course it's gone. Genetically engineered magnetoprotein remotely controls brain and behavior. Researchers in the United States have developed a new method for controlling the brain circuits associated with complex animal behaviors. Now, it starts out as being specific and not necessarily like envisioning moving your arm for you kind of a thing. But let me sh- walk with me through this. And let me prove to you that is exact par- part of what we're dealing with here. And it says using genetic engineering to create a magnetized protein that activates specific groups of nerve cells from a distance. Understanding how the brain generates behavior is one of the ultimate goals of neuroscience. It says they developed a number of methods that enable them to remotely control specific specified groups of neurons. The most powerful, and we've talked about the differences in these, is called optogenetics, which enables researchers to switch populations of related neurons on or off on a millisecond by millisecond timescale with pulses of laser light. Interesting. Another recently developed method was chemogenetics, uses engineering engineered proteins, and that's what we're talking about, that are actively activated by designer drugs and can be targeted to specific cell types. Although powerful, both of the methods have drawbacks, they point out. Optogenetics is invasive. And this is where we overlap with the current stated research that you can see from Charles Lieber, the specifically optogenetics requiring insertion of optical fibers that deliver the light pulses into the brain. But the point in that is not necessarily that you need those fibers, just rather that that's the immediate way to keep the study going. But these things are done using light pulses if you're primed the right way. And it says, furthermore, the extent to which the light penetrates the dense brain tissue is limited, but chemogenetic approaches overcome both of the limitations, but typically induce biochemical reactions that take several seconds to activate nerve cells. The new technique is non-invasive and says it can also be activate neurons rapidly and reversibly. That's interesting too, showing so there's no way to prove that something happened, right? So you can walk it back. But it says several earlier studies have shown that nerve cell proteins, which are activated by heat and mechanical pressure, can be genetically engineered so that they become sensitive to radio waves and magnetic fields. There's back to the same interesting overlap to the beginning of this where there was a lot of the magnet not necessarily just actual magnets, but there was part of that too, but the magnetic overlap, the magnogenetics aspect of what we were dealing with in the COVID-19 injection conversation. But it says by attaching them to iron storing proteins called ferritin or to inorganic paramagnetic particles, these methods represent an important advance. For instance, example, and I'll read you this next, they were already used to regulate blood glucose levels in mice. The point was they could either turn it on or off. So they could literally kill you like a diabetic if they use this and turn it off, or they could drive it to the point to where you feel that you need more, even though you don't. Now it says a new technique builds on this earlier work and is based on a protein called 
TRP, TRPV4, which is sensitive to both temperature and stretching forces. These stimuli open the central pore, allowing electrical current to flow through the membrane and that travel into the spinal cord, then up the brain. Now it says, I can skim through it really quickly because it was highlighted. So they used genetic they used genetic engineering to fuse the protein to the paramagnetic region of the ferritin together with short DNA sequences that signal cells to transport proteins to the nerve cell membrane and insert them into it. Now it says when they introduced the genetic construct into human kindy cells, they synthesized the magnetoprotein and inserted it into the membrane. The application of the magnetic field activated these engineered TRPV1 protein as evidenced by transient increases. Now, this one, there's the two, both of these are discussed. I'll go over both of them. It says the researchers inserted the magneto DNA sequence into the genome of a virus. Here's where it overlaps. Together with the gene encoding, and they, they tracked it using, I think, which is pretty much, I think is uh, lucid, luciferase, I think, and regulatory DNA sequences that caused the construct to be expressed only in specified types of neurons. They injected the virus into the brains of mice, targeting the the entorhinal uh, uh, cortex and dissected the animal's brains to identify the cells that emitted the fluorescence. Now, it says to determine whether magneto can be used to manipulate neuronal activity in live animals, they injected magneto into zebrafish larvae to control them. They then placed them into a special magnetized aquarium and found that exposure to a magnetic field induced coiling maneuvers, which they were desiring. This experiment involved a total of nine of them. And they and the interesting point, this is where you might want to overlap this, and it's a logical point, with the rapid installation and very shortwave 5G effort. Right? The point is they needed these on every street corner because they're much more powerful, but much shorter than the ones we've used before, which men, means they're literally everywhere. And this could be abused in the same way to exert that same kind of energy. Now, it says in one final experiment, the researchers injected magneto into the stratium of freely behaving mice, a deep brain structure containing dopamine-producing neurons that are involved in reward and motivation. They placed the animals into the apparatus, and essentially the point was they turned it on, and the ones that had it, it, it basically created a rewarding feeling when they were closer to certain things. Now, this is how you can control in a large scale a population, especially if they've all taken an injection that might put this thing in their body. This shows that Magneto can remotely control the firing of neurons deep within the brain. Neuroscientists at Harvard, of, of all places, here's the virus size transistor from Harvard in 2011 with Charles Lieber, used optogenetics to manipulate memories in the brains of mice, right? This is a different scientist working on this at Harvard who uses this same technology to manipulate memories in the brains of mice. And he called this, this study, badass. Previous attempts using magnets to control the neural activity, magnets, needed multiple components to work. Injecting magnetic particles, injecting a virus that expresses the heat-sensitive channel could induce changes in magnetism, he explained. The, the problem with having a multiple, multiple component system is that there's so much room for individual pieces to break down. This is a, and so that's the old style. This is a single elegant virus, he says, that can be injected anywhere in the brain, which makes it technically easier and less likely for moving bells and whistles to break down. Now, we've already shown you. I mean, I might even still have it here. 
Dr. Pilevsky, of all people, discussed this. We've been shouting him out from the very beginning of this. How long before COVID-19, an injection with these injections, whether it's in your arm or elsewhere, still do find their way to the blood-brain barrier. I heard earlier that there's no real concern about aluminum because it's such a small amount, and so it really shouldn't matter. But the kind of aluminum that we put into vaccines is a different kind of aluminum that we see environmentally. This is called a nanoparticle, and nanoparticles bind really tightly to the bacteria antigens, the virus antigens, the food protein antigens, and any other contaminants that are in the vaccines that we may not know about. And we know that the biochemical properties of nanoparticles is that they are capable of entering the brain. And so we have not evaluated the safety of the aluminum nanoparticle and its injection and where it goes when it gets into the body and whether it gets into the brain. Do vaccine ingredients belong in the brain? No. Do they get into the brain? No one has ever studied it. But animal studies using the same chemicals that are in vaccines that we give to children directly demonstrate that the vaccine ingredients do enter the brain. We are ignoring this information. There are scientists in Europe who've actually done studies on the aluminum nanoparticle and have shown that it can persist in the brain for years and decades. And so what we're seeing is a large outbreak of neurodevelopmental disabilities in adults. It gets into what we've seen. Right. And I agree with him. The points he's making previous to this are just that that was that's this in experimental sense has caused all these byproducts in, in people. Right. But my point here is that if we already know, hypothetically, well, for my, hypothetically, if the thing they gave everybody happens to have something like this, that what he just discussed ensures that it would, in fact, make it into your brain, which in this conversation is exactly how it ends up being utilized. You no need to inject it right into the brain when you're using technology that allows it to cross the blood-brain barrier. Seems pretty interesting. Now, here is the other study. This is from 2017. Seek, Rockefeller University, says, flipping a switch inside the head. It says, ready your tinfoil hats. Mind control is not as far-fetched an idea as it, as it may seem. In, in Jeffrey M. Friedman's laboratory, it happens all the time. Through the, though the subjects are mice, not people. Friedman and his colleagues have demonstrated a radio-operated remote control for the appetite of glucose metabolism of mice. Now, they briefly mentioned that in the 2016 article, right? This takes it way further. At a flick of the switch, they are able to make mice hungry or suppress their appetite. Now, that's a simple and easy way to look at it, but it can be used in the same way in a lot of different bodily functions or brain functions. And the point is, it can be used to kill you or it can be used to benefit you. That's the dual-use technology of all of this. It says, although there are other ways to deliver signals to neurons, each has its limitations. In deep brain stimulation, for example, scientists thread a wire through the brain to place an electrode next to a target cells. And this, of course, overlaps with Elon Musk and that work as well. But it says, but the implant can damage nearby cells and tissues in ways that interfere with normal behavior. Right, That's where optogenetics, even the chemogenetics comes in. But it says in this case, optogenetics, which works similarly but uses fiber optics and a pulse of light rather than electricity, has the same issue. Now, the point is, though, you do not need the fiber optics aspect of this if you have this stuff deployed in different ways, as we discussed, the possibility. This is a third strategy using drugs. See? Well, I didn't finish the sentence. Optogenetics, which works similarly to fiber optics and a pulse of light rather than electricity, has the same issue. The third strategy, 
which again, is all seems to fall back into using drugs to activate genetically modified cells bred into mice is less invasive, but drugs are slow to take effect and wear off. The point is bred into them, bred into them. So if you're giving them something like a genetically modified virus that produces certain proteins that can then pass down into generational or generationally passed down, well, you don't need any other things. It says the solution that Friedman's group hit upon, referred to as radio, radio genetics or magnogenetics, avoids these problems. Biologists can turn neurons on or off in a live animal at will, quickly, repeatedly, and without implants, by engineering the cells to make them receptive to radio waves or magnetic fields. Now, what do we just give everybody? A genetically modified genetic a gene editing injection that's been genetically modified with God knows what else in it, seeing as how we've been lied to so many different times. Now, it says the researcher's first challenge was to find something in a neuron that could serve as an antenna to detect the incoming radio signal or magnetic field, should it be turned on. The, the logical choice? Ferritin. Seems to keep coming back up. And guess what, guys? It's currently in a lot of new injections they're working on and already testing. Each ferritin particle carries within it thousands of grains of iron. Now, here's how you can understand why this makes sense. So ferritin is just a protein, right? But each ferritin particle carries with thousands of grains of iron that wiggle around in response to a radio signal and shift in a line when immersed in a magnetic field. Now, it says Friedman's team realized that they could use a genetically engineered virus to create doorways into a neuron's outer membrane. If they could then somehow attach each door to a ferritin particle, they reasoned, they might be able to wiggle the ferritin enough to jostle the door open. The door we chose, TRPV1. Now here is this one. And it says, this is an element of or mechanism used by the mammalian uh, somatosensory system, which is essentially the network of neural structures in the brain and body that produce perception of touch as well as temperature very and pain sensory. It says it is a non-selective caution channel that may be activated by a wide variety of exogenous and endogenous physical and chemical stimuli. The best known activators of this exact TRPV1 are temperature greater than 43 degrees Celsius, acidic conditions, capsaicin, the irritating compounds in hot chilies, maybe irritating to some, and ally, uh, and, and this is allele isothiokinate, which was um, naturally occurring. The colorless oil is responsible for the pungent taste of vegetables. And it says the pungent, and as well as the pungent compound in mustard and wasabi. So it's an interesting thing they're choosing to, to focus on. The activation of TRPV1 leads to painful burning sensation. Isn't that interesting? Sort of like a, the 5G overlap, but it also says the its endogenous activators include the endocannabinoid anodyne or ananodyne. How do you say that? Anandamine. Mandamine. <laughs> Can't say that properly. But anyway, the point. I just think it's interesting the endocannabinoid overlap to this, which people dismiss. It's almost like they're trying to utilize something they pretend isn't even there. But it says that this is involved in the transmission and modulation of pain as well as the integration of diverse pain stimuli. So that's the first one. The four 
was the one we mentioned earlier. This is the encoding protein that has been found involved in multiple physiologic functions, dysfunctions, and also disease. It functions in the regulation of systemic osmotic pressure by the brain. Interesting. Disease overlap. Anyway, so just those are relevant kind of just background points to understand what these things are. The point is using ferritin, using genetically engineered viruses to relay what is needed to activate this. To accomplish this, they inserted the TRPV1 and ferritin genes into a virus and using yet another genetic trick, injected them into the glucose sensing neurons. The neurons responded. They began to fire signaling a shortage of glucose, even though the animal's blood sugar levels were normal. Diabetics know all too well how this, how important this is. And other parts of the body responded just as they would to a real drop in the blood sugar. Insulin levels fell. This can kill you, mind you. The, the liver started pumping out more glucose, which can definitely kill you should they push that too far. And the animal started eating more. In effect, Friedman said, we created a perceptual illusion that the animal had low blood glucose, glucose even though they were normal. That's terrifying to me, especially when we get into the latter part of the show to where this is really going. Inspired by the results, the researchers wondered if magnetism, like radio waves, might trigger ferritin to open those cellular doors. Guess what? It did. When the team put the mice cages close to the MRI machine or waved a rare earth magnet over the animals, a literal magnet, their glucose-sensing neurons were triggered. It's funny how quickly people dismiss these things in like the magnet conversation. And I still don't think I've ever seen any actual provable evidence other than, you know, per people's individual experiences. But still, the fact that we dismiss these things these days or dismiss anything for that matter as conspiracy theory. It's just it's it's just I mean, people, anybody even using the term conspiracy theory these days, to me, that's just a sign of blanket ignorance. By the way, even if it turns out to be wrong, mind you, it's just it's a sign of reflexive dismissal. That's just dumb. It is. It's a stupid, ignorant trait. But it says stimulating appetite is one thing. Could they also suppress it? The group tweaked the TRPV1 gene so it would pass chloride, which acts to inhibit neurons. Now, when they inserted the modified TRPV1 into the neurons, the rush of chloride made the neurons behave as if the blood was overloaded with glucose. Insulin production surged in the animals and they ate less. Friedman and Stanley hope that biologists will be able to use the remote control system to tackle a range of neural processes other than appetite. God only knows. I mean, you know where this goes in a military mind. And beyond being a basic research tool, the method could potentially lead to novel therapies for brain disorders, or it could create them. Potentially, it would be, and again, don't miss the obvious brain overlap to the point that we made about the study they're working on and why that would then be used in a time when they know we're paying attention to gain-of-function research and suddenly a new brain disease, brain virus concept. Potentially, it would be less invasive to inject the crippled virus into the same spot of the brain and let it permanently modify cells there, making them responsive to wireless control when that time comes. And knowing, as we just showed you, that they do already make their way into the brain because of the way that they're encapsulated, the way that they're used, the adjuvants, well, it's just as likely that this has already been done. We talked about the idea of the uh, priming aspect, the kill switch discussion, or just being primed for whatever comes next. Again, let's, that's why I play that clip when I start. The idea of this is what they're excited about, right? Turning your body into the production. Like that's a, that's a whole nother step. 
right? Giving you something that maybe that was the pinnacle of where they got with this to turn your body into the factory that creates the protein needed in that moment. Wall Street and biotechnology companies have been very excited about this idea. And what essentially it is, is trying to hack the cells in the body in order to make them into drug factories. That's Forbes. And you can see the Pfizer badge in the background, right? It's very real. Now, in theory, it says it might also be possible to make a patient's own cells receptive to electromagnetic waves by removing them from the body, delivering TRPV1 and ferritin, and then putting the cells back. Interesting. As they, they, they discuss, they relate that to like a stem cell treatment. Well, there's all sorts of overlaps to exactly how this could have played out. Now, all I hope people can see from these last two things is that this is real. This is, this is from a, like a borderline decade ago, right? Well, like eight years, seven years depending on what time you look at. The point is it's real. It's actually happening. And if you think this stopped with mice, you don't understand how the world works. But quite frankly, if you think that if, when you read this, it was only at mice, you don't understand how the military works and DARPA and the overlap with all of it. But here is 2021. Preclinical studies support Army's pan-coronavirus vaccine development. What is it? a spike ferritin nanoparticle COVID-19 vaccine developed by researchers at the Walter Reed Army Institute of Research. Because that's normally where you make vaccines, right? Military research, spike ferritin nanoparticle. So it's an overlap with the ferritin uh, ferritin protein, but also the spike protein utilizing nanotechnology and and for a pan-coronavirus vaccine. This is the same kind of platform discussion, and the point would be to set these things in your body and then activate it like we're talking about. It's a platform. We're going to trigger this protein. The point, though, is that with these things included, what we just discussed is on the table. Here was one from 2022. Dose, safety, tolerability, and immunogenicity, immunogenicity of an influenza H1-stabilized stem ferritin vaccine. All of these things are utilizing this. Here is one from 2023. Feds start enrolling volunteers for their mRNA flu vaccine trial. And yes, this is a ferritin injection. Now, this one doesn't even, uh, this one says it right here. Oh, this does say it on here, ferritin right there. The, the other conversations you see this, it does it mentions this term, but just doesn't let it make it clear that it's ferritin. But it's the H1SSF3928 mRNA lipid nanoparticle. But that is an abbreviation for H1 is hemoglutinin-stabilized stem ferritin, meaning the vaccine uses the stem part of the influenza hemoglutinin protein displayed on the surface of a ferritin nanoparticle as the immunogen. You see how this all relates to exactly what we just read from those articles? The stem remains largely unchanged throughout influenza mutations as compared to the head, which constantly changes as the virus mutates into different strains in a process called antigenic drift. It's not the only mRNA-based flu shot candidate in the works. In January, Pfizer said during the World Economic Forum that his company is working on a combination mRNA vaccine for both influenza and COVID. All of these things are overlap, guys. Now, here's another one from 2023, and this one is very new. The study to evaluate the, this is the single dose H1SSF, the one we just read. But this, these are currently being used in studies. 
So you can overlap that with the possibility of how these things, especially this one, utilizing the spike protein, can actually shed. I'm going to do another focus coming up soon on the shedding again, even though we've proven that as as much as we've proven anything. But there was another stu- a, a good overview that somebody recently put out showing you all that we can prove in regard to the shedding, which is real, guys. It is very real that this is that they uh, Dr. Warren, Luigi Warren, made that point. And when you find out that it does, in fact, has the sustained synthesis of the spike protein, means it continues to do so. Which, yes, it means it can spread enough to, as the Salk Institute made clear, to cause symptoms in the person that catches them, which means it's its own thing. How is that not a self-spreading concept? Or even worse, a protein, genetically engineered spreading concept. Now, here's where this gets terrifying to me. The last part of the show is the worst thing. This is the stuff of my nightmares. This is recently sent to me. I think it was Orwell. Genetic Literacy Project. Awaiting nutritional analysis, these pink-hued, meat-tasting soybeans are set for outdoor field trials. Outdoor field trials. Now, right out of the gate, you may just think, oh, this is just some meat, you know, climate change, bug-eat-bugs kind of overlap. That's not where this is going. Let's read this. This is from the 10th. Fake meat doesn't taste anything like real thing. Pilot Project putting pig genes into soybeans Hope to change the status quo. Paladini is the CEO of Mulek Science, a molecular farming firm that uses crops to grow proteins. Now this, it says animal proteins, but that's not absolute. It's simply using crops to grow proteins. And I've talked about this as far back, like way before COVID-19 with the idea of the GMO cannabis aspect. Remember we talked about Prairie Inc. in Canada? which I don't even know if that place exists in the same way anymore. But back when I wrote about it, they were trying to make both GMO, GMO cannabis, but make crops that, it, that grew and had pharmaceutical properties like antidepressants. And that terrified me. And I still think that's happened. I think we're long since past that. God only knows what you're eating and what you're taking from the grocery store. But my point is, this is discussing utilizing these crops to create specific proteins. Now, yes, it's being framed as, we'll just make it animal protein so it tastes like meat, but that doesn't make sense to me. It says the idea is to turn plants into tiny field-based factories that can produce high-value proteins and other molecules. Doesn't that sound crazy? Or provide a meat you have to plant, right? Well, we'll pretend it's about the meat taste. How about it's just about creating plants that can then, then produce proteins? Then even worse about that is talking, let's just, let's just say the spike protein. Now that may sound crazy to you, but it's just a protein is something that can be produced. And if we know that protein can then, is in and of itself, here, I'll just grab that. Capable of causing disease, which was the main point of this. This is just the overview article, the link to the studies right there. It's peer reviewed, where they prove that the spike protein alone was enough to cause disease. Now, I'm not even getting into the part which we're going to get next, which is about the proteins that might be needed to, in, to get into your body that might be needed to outwardly control or biosurveil. But I'm just simply talking about the fact that you're, you're creating plants that make proteins that you're genetically altering. And then if that's capable of spreading, which this seems to be, what happens? How do you stop something like that? It says in June 2023, Mulek revealed that it had inserted genes from pigs into soy plants one more reason to stay away from soy, in order to make soybeans that expressed porcine proteins. Palladini was still impressed with just how much pig protein his soybeans seemed to produce. 
Next year, he hopes to find the soybeans to out to take them to outdoor field trials. Welcome to Monsanto land where these things blow into every field and suddenly there's no coming back from that. Now, I want to include this again before we finish with the main other main part that's going to terrify you. It, it, this has been discussed many times. And what, what are we talking about if not a bio-enhancement? That they've discussed, they've theorized, they've outlined. From This is just two, one of them from 2019, peer-reviewed, PubMed, National Library of Medicine. Compulsory moral bio-enhancement should be covert, secret. I'm going to read this all the way through. I haven't done it in a while. Some theorists argue that moral bio-enhancement ought to be compulsory, right? Like, should they say, hey, this is going to save everybody from disease? Or it's going to stop climate change or whatever they say. And their argument is we should force that on people like they tried to do with the injection. This person says, I take this argument one step further. And this was, um, as you can see, Medical Ethics, Humanities, and Law, Western Michigan University. And this is many times it's been discussed. He says he takes this one step further, arguing that if moral bioenhancement, as they argue, ought to be compulsory, well, then its administration to you and your body ought to be covert rather than overt. This is to say that it's morally preferable, talk about mental gymnastics, for compulsory moral bioenhancement to be administered without you knowing about it, that they, knowing that you're receiving it. His argument for this is that if moral bioenhancement ought to be compulsory, seeing as how they argue it's moral and needs to be done, then its administration is a matter of public health. And for this reason, it should be governed by public health ethics. Think of it using the word ethics in this conversation. They, they, you won't understand why this is necessary, so we shouldn't even tell you about it. It says, I argue that covert administration of a compulsory moral bioenhancement, I don't know, like packing your body and your, pro, your, your, your body with proteins like ferritin and other bioenhancements to use afterward, that, it better, that this program better conforms with public health ethics than does an overt one. Why? Because you'll know about it and say no. So then they have to acknowledge they're breaking the law. So they might as well make it secret. I mean, my God. And guys, this is not a new stuff. This has been talked about many times. The meat discussion, the, the, the Lone Star Tick example about stopping heating meat for climate change. This has been floated many times. So as well as the fact that if we're talking about the protein discussion, right? Making plants that create these specific proteins, whatever that may be, Let's not forget that they've already designed a lot of different ways to aerosolize and make lipid nanoparticles or mRNA loaded lipid nanoparticles that can, in fact, be utilized or aerosolized. And I go over this very deep in this discussion. We've met for reference many times. I might as well just read it since we're here. And this is about dual tech, dual use tech. And I simply said, this is how it works. It can be weaponized or it can help. And this is about the idea in this one about... Uh, Basically triggering cell death or, or solving the problem. Either way. The point was, this is why peer-reviewed science has found that the mRNA platform itself is causing myocarditis. Let's not forget that Ralph Barrick, North Carolina University, Chapel Hill, literally worked with the U.S. government funding to create a myocarditis-inducing coronavirus, then worked to aerosolize it in the caves of China and succeeded in this exact way, exact concept. And this overlapped with with. Uh, the work of Charles Lieber, Robert Langer, who was the co-founder of Moderna, which I think all of this embodied in the injections. And of course, Lieber is a biostized transistor we've referenced. And I've openly wondered whether this is exactly what is being used. Now, this to the ending part of the show today overlaps with the neuro weapon concept. And we played this, but I want to play this a little bit more 
a little bit longer version of it. Now, this again is James Gordano. It's not new. This is from 2020, but this goes back a long way. My point is to is for, I want us to realize that the, if we're talking about this, this whole comes full circle to the brain, the new gain of function research, or rather just the new example of it, and how that is showing to cause some kind of brain virus that kills in a week, or is it a, is it is it a virus? I wonder whether this is in fact the continuation of the experiment in regard to the brain aspect, or rather the biosurveillance or the outward manipulation of you, your brain processes, or really your movements itself, as a hypothetical pr- consideration. I mean, this is real. My point is, how do we know whether or not it's actually been deployed or not? We talked about this exact point on this show from the 29th, the neuroweapon side to the COVID illusion. Now, I'm going to play this clip. Again, this is the full thing. It's an hour and 11 minutes. Brain science from bench to battlefield. This, guys, is terrifying. What they can be used to do is create particular yet highly selective effects in individuals so that they can be delivered at very, very low doses, yet deliver a high amplification effect that's called a hormetic potential to be able to alter cognitions, emotions, and behaviors. How do you do that? Well, you can work on key operatives. In other words, this individual who's sitting before me may be a diplomat. Oh, really quickly, I just, so for, for framing this. James Gar- uh, Giordano, who's speaking, is a professor in the Department of Neuro- Neurology and Biochemistry at Georgetown University. And he, 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 over- he works with NASA, or I mean, uh, NATO. He works with intelligence, you know, the military. I mean, his, his, his all, it's all the overlap with exactly what we're talking about. Coming to inter- How do you do that? Well, you can work on key operatives. In other words, this individual who's sitting before me may be a diplomat. They are now coming to interact with me. They may have a posture that does not necessarily align with mine. Can I alter their cognition? Can I alter their affiliation? Can I alter their emotionality? And in such a way, might I be able to alter their behavior? Yeah, I can. And if- just realize, right, this is not new. Discussing, that, yeah, they already can do this. They can already utilize these technologies to manipulate you and the way you perceive the world around you. And this is about taking that in a, in a whole new direction, or rather just a more invasive, deeper, more manipulative direction. If, in fact, this individual possesses political or charismatic capability, charm, charisma, leadership potential, to then stand before their people and say, this guy's my best buddy now, they might go, well, I'm following this guy. Or they might think he's stark raving mad and I've created social disruption within his political ranks. I can do that on a variety of levels. Now, there's a couple different points. It's about the middle part of what he says here, but I wanted to include all of it. And I just want, so this goes into a lot of different angles to this. It's one about something that is deployed, right? Whether viral or bacteria that can manipulate, or rather just the threat of that, which can manipulate. That goes in the parasite stress theory that Derek has covered, that they don't need it, or Danny Rancourt's work. They just, the threat alone will drive you into taking whatever they want. But then also the application of some techno- technology side of this, the nanotech, the smart dust aspect. From individuals who are head of a small family or group to the tribal, to the community, to the large-scale population. So we can utilize these things to be able to affect key operators and dynamic individuals who may charismatically, politically, or through other means of power be able to affect groups. It's a ripple effect. It is a ripple effect. Moreover, we can induce a number of neuromicrobiological agents to then incur something called high morbidity. These are not necessarily mortal agents. We can modify the existing palette of bacteria and viruses through the use of gene editing techniques. Very viable. This has been some of my ongoing work with my colleague, 
Diane Deulis at National Defense University. That's literally what we're talking about in the overlap of genetically manipulating viruses to do X, Y, and Z. And what we can also do is recognize that there are existing microbiologicals that can be harnessed to then induce the effects. We can also engage certain chemicals that way. What we want here is a morbidity factor, not necessarily a mortality factor. I want to make people sick. And what I do here is the virus is not necessarily the bug. The virus is what I put over the Internet. Let me show you how I can crash a system pretty easily. Now, this is just the overlap to how you can use the, the simple suggestion. And think about this and how that overlap with the COVID-19 illusion. I affect key individuals here, here, and here. And then I take another community in the back of the room. I affect key individuals there. And then I take another community. I affect key individuals there. And then I do what every good attributional group does. I beat my chest and take credit for it. And what I put out over the Internet is this is a virus, a bacteria, an agent that I have infiltrated into your fill-in-the-blank I say it's a weapon of mass destruction, and what I tell you it's going to do is it's going to produce paranoia, anxiety, and sleeplessness. What I've just done is I've recruited every paranoid hypochondriac to think that they have whatever that is. I've used salient and sentinel cases, and I create essentially a legion of what's known as the worried well. They now flood emergency rooms. They flood their clinicians. Mm -hmm. The CDC responds back and says, no, 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 there is no such a thing, and I've created a schism of trust between the population and the polis. It's both a short and a long war's effect. Right, so that's just about just narrative control. And this gets into the actual deploying of something real. Moreover, I can create particular neuromicrobiologicals that may have a much longer duration of action. For example, modified Zika virus. Modified Zika virus. What I can virus. then do is, as a consequence of that, is I can affect subsequent generations who incur a public health morbidity and mortality effect that then creates an increased economic and perhaps social burden. Long war scenario. If I wanted to do something that's a little bit more proximate, I can utilize nanoparticulate matter. Mm-hmm. Now, we can utilize nanoscience to create much better drugs to get them where they got to go in the brain. Right. I can create nanoscience and nanotechnology to be able to escort certain drugs across the proliferant barrier, which is the blood-brain barrier. and blood. So apply that to what we're talking about. And, what, and I'm not saying something that you are aware is present, but something that could have been utilized. And remember, why in the world were they jamming things into the blood-brain barrier onto some guise of a test that you could have swabbed your mouth for? What were they testing to see was present? What were they trying to find out was going on in your brain? Cerebrospinal fluid barrier. So I get these things where they got to go. But I can also utilize nanoparticulate matter in a very indiscriminate way. The idea here is that I can get something called high CNS aggregation material that is essentially invisible to the naked eye and even to most scanners because it is so small that it selectively goes through most levels of filter porosity. These are then inhaled. Meaning masks don't work. Either through the nasal mucosa or absorbed through the oral mucosa. They have high CNS affinity. They clump in the brain or in the vasculature and they create essentially what looks like a hemorrhagic diathesis, in other words, a hemorrhage predisposition or a clot predisposition in the brain. What I've done is I've created a stroking agent. Now, that is a, a example of a specifically deployed weapon, right? In utilizing the same technology that simply creates death, like as we're discussing in the dual-use aspect of it. But what we're getting into is the more of the middle ground aspect. It overlaps with the Lieber-Langer research in regard to biosurveillance, even going as far as to actually control how you, the output, your movements, your thought processes. And so this is in, it, it, it's in the middle of what we're discussing here. But the point is the technology is real. 
and absolutely could be applied this way based on what we just discussed and what he's overlapping for the military. And it's very, very difficult to gain attribution to do that. I can use that on a variety of levels, from the individual to the group, highly disruptive. And in fact, this is one of the things that has been entertained and examined to some extent by my colleagues in NATO. NATO? And to those who are working on the use of neurobiological sciences to create populational disruption. Very, very worried about the potential for these nanoparticulate agents to be CNS aggregating agents to cause neural disruption. Think about that. So this is an older video where he's talking about how NATO is very concerned about the utilization of exactly what they're working on and exactly what's being utilized in the work we're discussing. Gee, I wonder why they're afraid of it. Like, I mean, whether or not you think they're like with the same illusion of the gain of function work, they're doing it to get ahead of it, to stop in case the bad guy Russians do it, which is just as likely, or they're just making weapons. So they have the weapon when the weapon's used on them. They don't care about how it affects you. The point is it's real and they're concerned about it to the point to where they're making it themselves. Or maybe that's the illusion so they can make it in the first place either as hemorrhagic and vascular disruptors or as actual neural network disruptors because they interfere with the network properties of various neural nodes and systems within the brain. And that's where it comes in for me to the meshing concept, right? The idea of not maybe not disrupting it, but maybe creating that. And this overlaps with, as I'm not going to get too deep into today, with the concept of artificial intelligence, the mapping of the human brain, the consciousness, which they've continued to fail at. That's one other example of how this could have been utilized. I thought about that right in the beginning of all this. That's when the whole magnogenetics aspect came into play. Wondering whether or not this was about trying to mesh human, whether it's a specific grouping of, of, of the population or the whole planet. I don't know, but it's very real. And, it, and this goes back to the Internet of Nano Things, the Internet of Bodies, and how that can be employed. I mean, it's, it's the same as the, as simplified as it sounds, the routers in your house. You can utilize the technology and the, the wireless aspect of this throughout the, the, again, the Internet of Bodies is about using nanotechnology internally and then connecting those things to the Internet. And then that could then be meshed in, in regard to the data flow. I really do think there's a part of that here. Now, here is an older post from, uh, where was the date on this? <sighs> uh, right there, November 2020. Right in the beginning, you know, beginning of the COVID illusion. This is from the United States Naval Academy. And it's the same discussion. This is James Gordano, Battlescape Brain, Military and Intelligence, Use of Neurocognitive Science. I just like, think about the name, Battlescape Brain. Battlescape Brain. This is what they're, they're talking about in the, prior to the mass deploying of a genetic manipulation. And God knows what else. Now, before we finish with the last two videos, I want you to think broadly here about the concept of stuff like this, nanotoxicology. And this is from 2013, 12, excuse me. Nanotechnology is considered as one of the key technology of the 21st century. Did they tell, like, funny how they don't tell anybody that until it's already being utilized and promises revolution in our world of objects at nanoscale take on novel properties and functions that differ markedly from those seen in the corresponding bulk counterpart, primarily because of their small size and large surface area. Studies have revealed that the same pro properties that make nanoparticles so unique could also be responsible for their potential toxicity, which is exactly why the lipid nanoparticle concentration has continued to cause the problem that it still does because they never solved that. Or at the very least, they thought they did and they failed. It says nanotechnology is rapidly advancing with more than a thousand nanoproducts already on the market in 2012. As they're saying, we don't even know if it's safe. Exactly the point. 
<clears throat> says, considering the fact that intended as well as an unintended exposure to nanomaterials is increasing and presently no clear regulatory guidelines on the testing evaluation of nanoparticulate materials are available. The in vivo, in, vi, uh, in vitro toxicology studies become extremely relevant and important, which I don't think they cared about. Very interesting. Now here, it's just a couple of interesting overlaps that Orwell shared with me. And this is from this uh, three days ago. Biometrics implementations around the world undermined by lack of consent. Just kind of an abstract way to show you that it doesn't matter what we're getting into. Whether it's the simple old school kind of clumsy idea now of just your data, your personal online information or internal biosurveillance. They never follow through with what they claim. We're not going to share this. We're going to keep this private. The point is we're at a point now where your biometrics, it's just what's the wild west out there. And there's, they're taking this stuff without your consent. They're taking this stuff as you walk by street cameras. It's everywhere. And we don't even really fully understand what that will mean the further we get into the whole digital twin online discussion. It's terrifying. As well as the fact of exactly what I'm talking about is something that is being researched and long has been, and I think we're at the cusp, if not already happened. This is 2019. Brain, human brain cloud interface. The internet comprises a decentralized global system that serves humanity's collective effort to generate, process, and store data, most of which is handled by the rapidly expanding cloud. A stable, secure, which I disagree with, real-time system may allow for interfacing the cloud with the human brain. Now, guys, this could be a way to get you to do the thing that they've tried to get you to do and it didn't work. But think about that. The idea of a person, like uh, willfully tapping your brain into some cloud dynamic. That's kind of crazy to me. That's the overlap with the Elon Musk discussion as well, which is one promising strategy for enabling such a system denoted here as the human brain cloud interface would be based on technologies referred to as neural nanorobotics. Future neural nanorobotics technologies are anticipated to facilitate accurate diagnoses and eventual cures. That's always how this is framed. And maybe that's even true. But the point is so much bigger than that. Neural nanorobotics may also enable the brain cloud interface with controlled connectivity between neural activity and external data storage and processing via the direct monitoring of the brain's neurons and synapses. What does that give you? Mapping. And it's much more than what it just describes right there. But the bottom line is, I think, especially once this becomes the cloud, the mesh, the interface, the overlap, this is something that will give them more insight into the way the brain works and how consciousness works, I guess is the right word, than ever before. Subsequent to navigating the human vasculature, three species of neural nanorobotics could traverse the blood-brain barrier, enter the brain, ingress, uh, ingress into individual human brain cells, starting to sound familiar, and auto-position themselves at the axion initial segments of neurons within glial cells and in intimate proximity to synapses. They would then, then wirelessly transmit whatever that stands for, that many bits per second of synaptically processed and encoded human brain electrical information via auxiliary nanorobotic fiber optics with the capacity to handle up to 10 to the 18th power bits per second and provide rapid data transfer to a cloud-based supercomputer for real-time brain state monitoring and data extraction. Sign me up. <laughs> What in the hell, man? This is the this stuff is terrifying. And you and I know 
anybody paying attention so far sees how perfectly that overlaps with everything else we're talking about. Now, just to end with the same things we discussed last time we discussed this, that they're telling you they're going to do this. James Corbett's one that really focused on this one from Canada, exploring biodigital convergence, where it just basically tells you, right, in the coming years, biodigital technologies could be woven into our lives in a way that digital technologies are now. Biological and digital systems are converging and could change the way we work, live, and even evolve as a species. My God. And they're just straight up telling you this. We've also talked about the fact where this document, I'll show you next, says in, in, 20, in 2002, they have a 20-year plan, which puts us right on track to alter evolution with nanotechnology. It's just right on the surface, everywhere. This is, from, this is converging technologies for improving human performance. What is Klaus Schwab telling you? That we're going to con, the, con, uh, merge your biological and your, uh, your uh, uh, basically merging your technological side with your biological side. That's what they're telling. That's what he says the fourth industrial revolution is all about. Let's see if I have that. I know I do somewhere. There it is. What the fourth industrial revolution will lead to is a fusion of our physical, our digital, and our biological identities. It's the difference of this rest of the clip goes on to make it clear that he decides to say that COVID-19 is a perfect example, a perfect opportunity to, to do that. Why does that make sense? We discussed this back on the 17th of May, 2021, the biodigital convergence, COVID magnetogenetic ferritin vaccines. Talking about it in 2021, guys. So to end, I thought it was interesting to talk about just one abstract part of this that I don't, you know, I, I very much believe is connected. But the reality of genetic of, ge, of geoengineering and the application of smart dust, which we'll, which, we, which we'll end with, which you've seen many times, I don't think is something that should be dismissed. But for those that just act like all of this is dismissible, how about something that you, I, I mean, it, I think this is regarded by most people today as a conspiracy theory, even though it is a provable reality. And even though here, Truth Three Media just shared an old video where this is uh, David Walker at the time, the Air Force Deputy Assistant Secretary for Science, Technology and Engineering openly admitting that HARP was used to control the ionosphere, to be able to control weather and a lot of other things. And yet, it's, it's a fake news story when brought up in civilized society. My point is to show you there's a lot around all of this that is converging to manipulate you. And we get told things are fake. Going back to the opening point about mis- and disinformation, listen to what he says here. The Air Force has uh, gotten great value out of HARP in the past. Are we... Uh... We took over from the Navy and managed it and actually did a number of uh, experiment campaigns up there and uh, have finished our, our work that we're interested in doing up there. We've uh, moving on to other ways of uh, managing. Finished their work was the point. Managing the ionosphere, which the harp was really designed that we're interested in doing up there. We've uh, moving on to other ways of uh, managing the ionosphere, which the harp was really designed to do. Was to Very clear. Very, very clear. Managing the ionosphere. To inject energy into the ionosphere, be able to actually control it. You know, to inject energy into the ionosphere in order to control it. It's not a conspiracy theory. It's exactly what people talk about. Now, one asp application of that would be to manipulate the weather. But it gets in a, it's much, much, much more dynamic than that. And, uh, but that work is, has been completed. Uh, the Earth
completed. Completed. It's an old video. Air Force uh, has maintained the site for other government agencies to use for several years now. Oh, great. And uh, with DARPA completing their project, that's our last government customer that we have in the site. Great. So DARPA, the same group involved with everything we're talking about right now, utilizing and controlling the ionosphere, right? Well, let's not forget this is not some secret thing. Here's an old post from 2018 from Harvard. Harvard, again, Harvard. It's funny how, I mean, not to say just because it's Harvard that's necessarily connected, but that's three times now this is dovetailed, overlapped, intertwined with the work of Charles Lieber, Harvard, and everything else, which is stratospheric aerosol injection, tactics that cost uh, and cost within the first 15 years of deployment, right? This is geoengineering. It's not a fake story for people to still ridiculously say that. This has been ongoing for a very long time. You can call it chemtrails if you want, but I agree with Dane Wigginton. That's That's a term that is manipulated geoengineering or rather specifically stratospheric aerosol injection is very real. The question is, is that being used and is it being controlled in order to deploy something? In this case, we could talk about smart dust because I think that's the most obvious that overlaps with nanotechnology and whether or not we're talking about something that has or has been deployed or will be in the future and that would then work in connection, in concert with whatever's currently been in your body via the COVID-19 injection, should you have taken that route. So what again, once again, for those that don't think this is real, okay, this is MakerCon from nine years ago. The inevitability of smart dust. In fact, when he's talking about it, it's already real. It's already there. So that means today it is for sure. The point is nine years ago, he talks about this and says this was 10 years old at the time. So almost 20 years ago. Funny the timing of all this, right? But the devices, the computing behind those interfaces aren't going to go away. They're going to just become invisible. We're still essentially the banging the rocks together stage for this sort of stuff. And you haven't really seen anything yet. So this is closer to the end of the vision. This is this powder-sized chip, um, and that's a salt crystal. So this is a small thing. It's something called the Mu chip from Hitachi. It's the smallest commercially available RFID system in the world and can be pulse-powered by radio waves. It doesn't require a battery. You can... Pulse-powered by radio waves. Does that sound familiar? It's exactly with radio genetics. It's exactly what we were just talking about. But that's not even necessary. Literally scatter this stuff like dust or embed it into a sheet of paper. And you know what the really interesting thing about this technology is? This was commercially released 10 years ago. That makes it 19 years old today. So the inevitability of smart dust. So what is smart dust? Well, can you even imagine how much more advanced it's gotten in 20 years? Smart dust, of course, isn't a new concept. It's the originated with DARPA back in the 90s. Of course it did. And it's general purpose computing, sensors, wireless network, networking, all bundled up into millimeter scale sensor modes, drifting in the air currents, flex of computing power settling on your skin, ingested, monitoring you inside and out. Right. And if you don't think that's possible, this is the Michigan Micromote. It's a cubic millimeter in size. And uh, in deference to the speaker before, yes, it runs an ARM processor. It runs on your own body's power. It does not need anything to operate. It could, though. It could be adapted and grown. The point is this can be deployed and can even relay information. This is one of the earliest examples of the biosurveillance aspect. But it's gotten much, much more alarming than that. Um, 
It's a tiny computer, and it features data pro uh, processing, data storage, wireless comms, and it's probably as close to the true smart dust vision from the early DARPA days as would come so far. They're designed to harvest energy from the environment around them and to communicate via a mesh network. There it is. And of course, the energy is the key problem with it. Can make the computing small, the energy is hard. The bottom line here, guys, this is quite obvious to me. I'm not saying that this is provably already done. Obviously, I hope it's clear that it could have been. It's very real. Everything already exists. And the reality of how they've deployed things in the past, especially when things like this happen, you look back and realize that, that it already happened for 10 years before they tell you what's happening. I just don't, I mean, look, and then going back to the compulsory bioenhancement aspect, they openly tell you that should they just happen to decide it's in the best interest of society, whatever that means to them, that they'll just do it without you knowing anyway. Everything's on the table. Now, I'm really not trying to just create fear here. I think there's enough in the world in what they're using and utilizing, whether the gain of function to, to be to fear, afraid of already. But I just want people to understand where we actually are. And I'm willing to bet you that I'm barely scratching the surface on where we actually are. This is just what we know about. And the reality is all about internal meshing, overlap, the the nanotech connection, the internet of the bot, the internet of uh, nano things, the internet of bodies, and the biosurveillance. And in fact, as I made sure to go over, even the outward control of what you think and do. I just don't know why we can't really engage with this conversation. I just felt like this was a necessary point, especially seeing some new gain of function aspect that suddenly is able to cause brain, some kind of brain virus that kills you in a, in a, in a, in a week. Is that actually what's going on? Or are we watching something that outlines exactly what we're discussing here? Right? A weapon that's been utilized. Tough for you to decide. I think ultimately, with all the evidence we have, that it's very clear that there's something to be concerned about here. And the last thing, assuming we have any influence over their actions, that we should be allowing is the further research in this regard. I really just think we need to start, like, just gain of function, obviously. But then again, we all seem to, as a population, be very aware of gain of function as the last thing we should be allowing and here it's even, it's not even just stopping. It's not, it's not only not stopping, it's increasing at this point. So, you know, the question is always, how do we in fact stop these things? Seeing as how they don't care what we think. They did, they two-party illusion dynamics will always keep them bickering over something to continue enough just to get to the next step. And on top of that, what's going on with Gaza or Syria or anywhere else? How do we know they're not already testing stuff like this? As we've seen numerous times in Gaza in particular, battle tested. Or Pfizer's lab. In any case, I plan on talking more about that angle and that conversation tomorrow or the next show, most likely tomorrow. But I just really hope this can open people's minds to where I really think this is going. So thank you for tuning in today. I hope this opened people's minds. I hope you're not reflexively dismissing any of this as conspiracy theory because literally everything I discuss is provable. Other than my hypothesis on how it might come together, this is all factual. All the links are down below. You can prove it for yourself. If you're the kind of person that will dismiss this out of hand, calling it conspiracy theory when I'm literally providing source material and peer-reviewed science, not from some fringe place, but from their own research of DARPA and NATO and everything else, then you don't want to acknowledge it. At least be honest about that. So please share this with people that need to see it. Thank you for tuning in today. I love you all. As always, question everything. Come to your own conclusions. Stay vigilant. Let's also be clear. The future is not just happening. The future is built by us.